electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, David Seberg, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, the media bidding frenzy is on. Comcast making a $65 billion bid for Fox. Will it leave Disney in the dust? What does it mean for the rest of the media space? We've got all the details in the trades. Plus, can you trust crypto? A new study says Bitcoin's big run to 20,000 wasn't all that it seemed to have been. The man behind the explosive report will be here to explain. But first, we start off with the big story of the day, the Federal Reserve hiking rates for the second time this year. Let's get straight to Steve Leisman, who was at the news conference with Jerome Powell earlier today. Steve. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, and more to come. The Fed raising rates by a quarter point. The new range is 1.75 to 2.2%, and it signaled further rate hikes ahead and what Fed Chairman Jerome Powell described as a robust U.S. economy. I would say that the economy is in great shape. Um, if you look at household surveys, confidence is high. Look at businesses, uh, confidence is high. Um, if you ask, uh, if you survey uh, workers about the job market, they'll say that it's a really good environment to find jobs. If you survey businesses, they'll say that uh, workers are scarce. So I think overall we have, we have a really uh, solid economy on our hands here. And so what we're doing is we are trying to conduct monetary policy in a way that will sustain that expansion, keep the labor market strong, and keep inflation above, right at, sorry, not above, but right at 2%. Most on the Fed believe the economy is now strong enough to withstand an additional two rate hikes this year. The previous consensus was for just one. And the Fed is now seen going above its long run rate in 2019. You can see that right there. The long run rate is 2.9, but it's going to go above that in 2019. There were other changes announced by Powell as he moves increasingly to put his personal stamp on the Fed that he took over in February, including a press conference now following every meeting that begins in January. Powell cautioned it did not mean any change in policy. He said the Fed is taking a wait-and-see approach when it comes to fiscal policy and how much it'll boost the economy. Powell said business leaders, though, have indicated concern about trade policy. And Powell is showing himself to be a man or a chairman willing to answer all questions. But guys, in fewer words than his predecessors, one sign of that... The Fed's policy statement now just a single page for the first time in quite a while, Melissa. And so at 300 plus words and the news conference itself, Steve, was under an hour. So really yeah. record time on the part of Jerome Powell. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like he's leaving questions unanswered. He's just yeah. got a different attitude towards all these things. One of the questions that he did field, Steve, was about the yield curve and the flattening that we we're seeing. And in fact, in today's session, we saw the yield curve flatten to point. Three nine, so 39 points, which was extremely, extremely narrow. He made it seem to me like there was a certain amount of that that was just out of the Fed's control, and maybe that wasn't reflective of what the economy is actually doing. Right, so there's a bunch of theories on this. One theory is that this has to do with both the Fed raising rates and the bigger deficits that are out there. Powell suggested that, but there's another idea that it's the market saying no moss, and the market is saying that, that you're going too far. And the big question to start asking now is, will Powell, will this Federal Reserve raise rates to a point that it would essentially invert the yield curve? 
I've talked to several Fed officials publicly, as you know, Melissa, who have said they would stop before that happened. So that's something that's going to limit how far the Fed's going to go. If we went into a meeting at 0.25 of a yield and the Fed uh, was forced with the question of raising rates, it may not do it. Interesting. Steve, thank you so much. Steve Leesman in Washington for us. By the way, 0.39, the narrowest the twos 10 spread has been since September 07. It was a whipsaw day. Take a look at this intraday. Whipsaw day for the markets, the Dow swing between gains and losses, but ultimately selling off into the close. So with a clear path ahead, uh, by, forecasted by Fed Chair Jerome Powell, what do you do now, Guy? Well, look, I think Tim said it last night. He thought this Fed was going to be hawkish. He thought the tone would be hawkish. Tim was right. I thought that the M&A activity, or at least the, the opening up of M&A, would actually sort of supersede that hawkish tone. I was wrong. Market sold off. What do you do now? Listen, for context, the S&P's basically had a 200-point rally unabated from that 2580, 2600 level to the current level. So today is not a big deal in a vacuum. But again, the Fed is in play. And it's interesting that they were as hawkish as they were. I thought that big tech traded well. I thought the banks were trading well. But what concerned me the most today was the fact that banks rolled over. Goldman was having a big day, basically closed slightly higher. J.P. Morgan lower, Bank of America lower. So maybe the euphoria of the last couple of weeks, at least for the short term, uh, maybe we're in for a little move to the downside. It seems like it goes back to that yield curve, though, going it does. narrow. I mean, you just said that it was the tightest yield, uh, the flattest since September of 2007. You know what happened in November 2007? The S&P topped out. You know what happened in 2008? We got that uh, We got that recession that Tony always says that comes after the inverted yield curve. Although he know. says we have 18 months yeah. before right. it happens. And, and who knows? But I think what really what goes back to Jay Powell said about the deficits, what Steve just mentioned, is we've never had this sort of situation coming off of rates being so low with deficits going high with the sort of uh, fuel that was just put on the fire here. It's totally going to be different this time, guys. I mean, that's just a fact. And when I look at the market today, I looked at the banks. Yeah, they rallied a little What's bit for a second. What's going to be different? Well, how this thing plays out is going to be different. I mean, the, the, we have the Fed chair just telling us that, you know, they're going to stop raising rates before the, the yield curve inverts. Well, all right, good I, luck with that, so trying here, to fix that. Here's, first of all, I, I thought today's press statement uh, was, was extraordinary. I think Excellent. there were things in there I did not expect to hear the Fed say, including, first of all, this is a Fed that now is acknowledging fiscal policy. He talked about incredible demand. You know, Janet Yellen would have said, let's wait and see till we actually see that flow through. Unless they're seeing it very differently than how they're acting right now. He talked about demand through 2019 and 20, and then he talked about the supply side. He also said two things to me that tell you he's a lot more hawkish than this sounded like. First of all, he tells you the economy's in great shape, and in the next sentence, basically, he tells you that labor is scarce and that workers are hard to find. That is such a, a recipe for wage inflation, which is the Fed's biggest issue. Uh, look, bottom line here is if people think that this Fed is going to go softly, I don't think so. This is a guy that thinks this economy deserves much less accommodation. And one more thing, sorry, Mel, but he's taken away all the toys. He talked about taking away this technical uh, aspect of uh -huh. the IOER, -E which, you know, we don't yeah. need to get into that. The bottom line is this was a policy statement where he said, I'm going to tell you we're not changing a thing, but I'm changing a lot. So isn't it extraordinary, then, that the markets really had very little reaction, little if, reaction. The, if he was actually much more hawkish than people thought at the surface? Oh, no, I, I, I think that the expectations were in line. I, I don't think he was, uh, you know, he was painting a picture of extreme hawkishness. I just think the market, look, the market was hoping for this. I really do believe it. Looking at investors, talking to investors, what their expectations were, this, in my opinion, is a very, very 
I think, benign statement. I think he handled it very well. And I think the market in general, I think it's off to the races. So, I think we continue to move higher. Let me tell you what wasn't That's benign. That's not my interpretation. No, well, so so let me tell you what was not benign. I think the price action in the home builders today was not benign. I think the, but the home builders have been in the financial the stocks for the was past, not benign. The, the inability the to see what all these the, you know, retail stocks, what they've been doing over the last couple months, and that was like, oh, they're out of the woods. Did you see how they reacted? They reacted to, to me, I just want to tell So listen, this is really important. I agree. This is what I'm saying, is that maybe all of this tax cut stuff right. got into the market, no and into the economy in Q1, right? And we kind of overshot Sugar it. Now, we're talking yeah, normalization so, win, 19, and a 19. I mean, we're talking a ways off. The market is not focused on 2019 from that perspective. And we're very much more short-term focused right now. Will volatility pick up? Absolutely. But today's commentary, in my opinion, it is still risk on. So short-term, what do we do? Quickly, though, can I just, I'm going to answer that question. But sure. one of the things that scared me that Steve touched on and, and Dan just talked about was the fact that we will stop raising if we are in danger of inverting the yield curve. That implies their belief that they can somehow control the back end of the curve, which, in my opinion, they don't, they right? I don't think they, the market controls that. So, yeah, they might be able to stop the front end from going up, but can they stop the back end from going down? That, to me, is something they should talk about. What do you do today? Well, I did think tech traded pretty well. Um, again, we mentioned AMD last week. That had a big day on what was the lousy tape at the end of the day. So there are individual names that are still starting to shine. But, again, the underperformance of the banks on a day where they should have actually performed was alarming to me. We're two weeks away from CCAR, Tim. What's up with the financials? Well, look, I, I, I think this is banks, or I think the market is misinterpreting the, the earnings power that banks have. I, I actually think maybe we're not 2007 banks' earning power, but we're certainly not 2012 banks' earning power. So, you know, I, I remain long banks. In fact, I, I don't think you have to trade this around so much. I think the inverted yield curve, as I pointed out, has been a time when banks have done very well, and bank stocks from 2006 to 2008, until they didn't so much, mm -hmm. um, did very, very well. So uh, I would be, if anything, from this Fed, I think they're going to go two more times this year, and I think you buy bank stocks. Well, our next guest says there are three stocks to buy off the Fed's rate hike, including some financials. Let's go off the charts with Robert Slimer of Fundstruck Global Advisors. Hi, Rob. Hey, Melissa. Thanks very much. Let's take a look at the market as a starting point, because we've had a big run, not only in the S&P, but certainly in the small caps and the NASDAQ. I think there's a couple of points. Look, the S&P's bounced off the 200-day very nicely. That's terrific technical action. It came right off of this downtrend that was in place from the January highs, right off that 2,700 level. And now we're getting into some resistance right around that 2,800 level. So it's not surprising to see a bit of a pullback. When you look at the NASDAQ or if you look at the Russell 2000, they're way up. They're way overbought on a very short-term basis. So a pullback is not anything to be uh, worried about, in my opinion. I think the technical action generally is still pretty healthy. So what do you do? What do you look at? I actually have to agree with, with Tim and a lot of these banks. The big banks, with some of the weakness that we've seen tied to Europe, have pulled back to 200-day moving averages. This is pretty good action. They break the 200-day back in early June of 16. They touch it back here, and now they're right back to support at the 200-day. It looks very timely to me. When you look at the relative performance, yeah, it's faded a little bit. But what you're seeing here is a full half year of a consolidation. Those are pretty timely entry points as the market rotates from one sector to the other. And we see that in two other financials as well. So, for example, J.P. Morgan, again, through the 200, back in June, off the 200 here, off the 200 here, and again, back at these levels. So it's now into support. It's starting to bottom. I think despite the action that you saw today, and I'd say that the bigger banks acted better than the regional banks, I think that they're really timely entry points, despite the debate about what's happening with the Fed. And the last point, we'll look at Morgan Stanley. It's a weaker name. It's underperformed. But again, I think it's very timely here, off the 200 day in the middle of 17, 
right here, right now, it's at support. And again, this relative strength, while it's weak, I think that's an opportunity. You've seen a drawdown and a pause in these stocks. I think this is where you buy the names. Rob comes over, I think, right? Uh, are you asking right. or are you, are you over, stating? Uh, I'm, I'm basically stating because I basically You run the show. I it's your decide. show. Brian will bring the, the chair in. Hey, right. Rob, come in. So you mentioned the big cap bank stocks. A lot of people right now are favoring the regionals on the notion that they'll benefit from all the things that the big caps will benefit, but also there's a possible uh, consolidation play as well. How does KRE look? How do some of the small right, so ones the, look? The regionals have ripped. They've had a great move. Yeah. They've been leading. There's certainly been the bigger play in terms of uh, rates moving higher, but I think you can get a rotation back to some of the laggers. I think the big, big cap banks are more timely from a technical standpoint than the regionals at this point. So Mel just asked the question, though. Um, we got CCAR a couple weeks. Is that, why don't they act better? Why is Citibank down 10% on the year? It's down much more from its highs. I mean, isn't the market a discounting mechanism? Isn't it supposed to move in front of this sort of stuff? So to me, I, I'm sorry to reiterate your question, but, but I'm going right. to. Just reiterate. <laughs> I mean, you've already reiterated. No, because I, apparently I didn't have the right answer. So I want to hear Roberts. <laughs> well, it's just technical. Look, I think from the standpoint of the market just rotating from one group to the next to the next, you've run the regionals up. The big cap banks are down and out. We've seen it sector after sector. We talked about the staples a few weeks ago, oversold, getting a bounce. The market's very good at regurgitating and moving through rotations. I think the banks are set up. I'm not sure what the catalyst is, but from a timeliness standpoint, right here, right now, the 200-day, it's pretty timely. I'll give you a technical one then, because Dan Nathan sort of, he, he tipped me off on this. We've been looking at the same thing. XLF had a huge run-up into 2008, failed around 32-ish. XLF has had a huge run-up over the last couple of years. Seemingly, it's failed now. Technicians will talk about a potential double top in XLF. Do you see one? Here's the difference. You go back to 2008, in fact, farther back, when you look at the banks, the relative performance for the banks peaked in 2004, well ahead of the broader market. So even though you have the price moving higher, that relative strength signaled that there was a problem in the banks well ahead of what was happening in the financials. You don't see that now at all. And lastly, we were talking about retail stocks. They ran up. Um, what do you see? How did the charts look given today's action? Uh, I mean, look, a lot of them had big moves. Yeah. The tape's overbought. Small caps are overbought. You get a bit of a pullback. I don't think they're broken by any means. Some are disasters, some you want to stay away from. But in general, I think overall, when you look at the equally weighted consumer discretionary sector, it's just grinding higher. I think it's still along. All right. Rob, thank you. Thank Rob you. Slimer of Fundstrat. What do we do today, Tim? Well, you know, look at the move in the S&P from 2790 closing at 2775 on the lows. Uh, to me, this is a case where I, I think you're at the top end of a range. And, and if anything, you know, we're throwing out there a few more index shorts because I, I just look what I hear out there is that the economy is fine. Um, what I don't think we are understanding is that the Fed is going to hike and be mildly more aggressive than people expect. We're in a multiple compression environment for the overall market. Added to financials. Look, I mean, I think the one key you know, point with the financials is the underweight of the hedge funds. Hedge funds aren't exposed right now. The long onlys, they're exposed. The hedge funds really haven't dipped in aggressively. So I think that, that exposure is going to be taken up, I think, tremendously. KRE, really, the, the why, regionals why, are the way to play why, it. Why, because they haven't why, been in the game why? yet. Because the charts not is this. There. I'm just saying, I think if you're focused on waiting for the hedge funds Look, to you, get into the bank trade, you're looking at the wrong stuff. I just want to say this. So you want to ask. So to me, you're saying you're throwing out some index shorts out there. The Russell, that was kind of that sugar high trade to me. I think you want to avoid that. You don't want to chase it. He's talking about AMD. You guys were talking about it at 10 bucks, 11 bucks, this and that, whatever. I'm not so sure at 16 you want to be chasing it. I know you said that before, but buy it. It's an excellent point by Dan Nathan. I'm just saying. But you still I love like the belligerence tonight side. on a Thursday night. It's, it's been. Especially because it's Wednesday. Wednesday. It, it's a belligerence of a Thursday <laughs> on a it's Wednesday. It's a belligerence of a Thursday. Wow. Did anybody notice a Tesla traded 350 today? I did. Yeah. Like, that's, notice that deflection. 
away yeah. from his... No, yeah. Wednesday, yeah. Wednesday, Wednesday night. night. I knew it was Wednesday. Coming I don't shave on Wednesdays. Coming up, the media deal mania is on, and Comcast is the first to strike announcing its bid for Fox. So who will win the media wars, and can anyone beat Netflix? Plus, it's a study that's rocking the crypto universe, an academic study that says Bitcoin is being manipulated. We've got the man behind this shocking report. And later, Guy here stepping up to the plate with one under-the-radar tech stock, he says, is about to break out. We are live in Times Square, New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Comcast, the first to fire in the media wars after the AT&T and Time Warner deal got court approval last night. Let's go to Leslie Picker in the newsroom for the details on this breaking news. Leslie. An investor call going on right now after Comcast officially announcing its bid for much of Fox's assets. Now, the number to know here, Melissa, is $65 billion. That's $35 a share in cash, a 19% premium over Disney's all-stock bid. The Disney bid was worth about $52 billion. It could, of course, ignite a bidding war for the assets, which include Fox's film and TV studios, regional sports networks, and cable networks like FX and Nat Geo. As you mentioned, the court decision yesterday enabling AT&T to acquire Time Warner without much in the way of divestitures or behavioral remedies paved the way for Comcast's move today. Comcast wrote in today's release that it was, quote, highly confident that it could obtain all necessary regulatory approvals and was as likely or even more likely to receive those approvals than that of Disney. Comcast agreed to pay the same reverse breakup fee in an antitrust scenario, $2.5 billion, and offered to reimburse Fox for the $1.5 billion breakup fee it would owe to Disney. Now, time is ticking here. Fox scheduled a vote for the Disney merger for July 10th. That's less than a month away. Comcast said it filed proxy materials with the SEC in opposition to the Disney proposal already. The deal is subject to approval by Fox shareholders and regulators. Of course, Comcast says it expects a close to come 12 months after signing if that signing does occur. So far, Fox and Disney have not responded to requests seeking comment. Melissa. All right. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker in the newsroom. So as these companies race to win, what does winning actually look like? We had Craig Moffat on last night and he threw up the question. If these companies are able to actually seal the deal with big bucks, et cetera, are they just staving off the inevitable? when it comes to declines. 100%. There's no question about it. There's no competition for Netflix right now. And I, and I think any of these deals stress that. I mean, they have flawed fundamentals. I mean, across the board, whether it's Comcast for Fox, you know, whether it's Disney buying Fox assets, I mean, there are flawed fundamentals across the board. So you have a business that's in secular decline, the network business. There's nothing... So only Netflix, only right Netflix now. wins in your world? Hold on. And Netflix hold on, hold on. has no competition? <laughs> I think Netflix who's, has who's nothing competition? but competition. Hold on. Who's their competition right now? Everybody. So you think about Netflix going out... Amazon, Hulu, oh, Disney. I mean, everyone's going, everybody's going over the top. Stop. Let's, let's, let's talk about, let's talk right. about factually. Stop right? me down. There is, and, and please, there let's is go. no competition for Netflix. But what do you from mean fundamentals? You Think mean about what? Can, nobody's watching TV? I mean, no, what, no, what are you doing? No, no, no. From the standpoint of being able to go after it from an over the top subscription based model, that is the way, that's the direction this market's going. When you think about Netflix and the scale they have, they only have 15% penetration internationally. They have roughly 60% penetration of you know, broadband subscribers in, in the U.S. Okay. You look at it this way. You say if they go out and content is king, go out and acquire content, they could spread that cost around every single one of their active monthly users. No other, no other uh, party or no other company can do that. So from a cost I, perspective, I want to flip this question around. I want to flip this question around. If Comcast wins, 
the bid for Fox. Does it win? Near term. I'll tell you why I don't think it, maybe it does win. I think it's going to take a couple of years to answer that question. You know who does win? And it's not me saying it. It's the market saying it. You saw what Disney did today. Yeah. Disney had a significant move to the upside. That me reading my little tea leaves and their little tea leaves says to me, really? market doesn't want Disney to correct. win. They That's don't correct. want Disney to overpay for this. They don't think Disney needs it, which is why, in my opinion, Disney was higher. So the winner could be Disney if they don't get it. Well, you know, uh, another stock that made an all-time high today was Electronic Arts. And this would be something that I think if, if Disney yeah. were to lose out to Comcast, you could see them going for that sort of content. I think a sort of differentiated content may fit really well into what you think about what they're doing with ESPN. They have these amazing sports friends. Franchises, obviously, Star Wars, that fits in pretty well. So, to me, I think it, that's an expensive acquisition. And that thing's trading at eight times sales and, right now. And now, with the legalization of sports gambling, yeah. that, there's a whole other layer to buying some sort of video game yeah. presence. There's no question that, you know, we, we've talked about esports, we've had a, a lot of focus on this, and even Rich Greenfield brought this up last night. I mean, the bottom line is they should be getting into this area. If they're not, media companies are effectively gaming companies. The interactivity of what's going on is very important. So, Activision, EA, and EA is, we, you know, we mentioned this. It, it, it's not cheap even after today. It's not expensive, I should say, after today's move. I don't think a, a 28 multiple on this company with the kind of growth they have in the space they're in is something you actually should be scared of. All right. Well, as the media wars heat up, Netflix is just blowing away the competition. David here says it's going to be the winner. And the stock has been dominating legacy media players up nearly 100 percent in 2018 alone. Fox is up still a impressive 26 percent. While Disney, Viacom, AT&T, they're all in the red. So who can catch Netflix? We bring in CNBC.com tech reporter Alex Sherman, who spoke to the CFO of Netflix. Uh, Alex, what did he tell you? So, Melissa, I mean, similar to David's point, I think he said not everyone here is going to be a winner just by getting bigger. Uh, you know, we're seeing all sorts of mergers at this point, from big guys to, to little guys. Take a look at two of the things he told me. First, he said, not everybody's going to get big. The strategic question is, what type of business do I want to be? in the next five or 10 years. Some brands are big enough to compete to be another Netflix or another YouTube and vie for the global consumer media dollar, but not everybody's going to be in that bucket. So it's interesting, as all of these giant media companies come together, Netflix, this is from Netflix CFO David Wells, yeah. is sort of taking a look at this from a step back and saying, I don't know that I fully agree with all, what all you guys are doing. And he even commented on sort of the direct-to-consumer OTT services. That, really is Disney's big step forward here. And he said, look, I'm not sure the consumer wants 100 OTT services. They want one that does a job really good so you can sit down and find what you want in five seconds. They don't want to hop around and go to Discoveries and Disney's and, and theoretically uh, Comcast and Netflix and Amazon. So he's really, uh, you know, in a way, stepping back and saying, I get that you guys are all competing with me, Netflix, but I'm not sure the way you're competing with me is the right way to compete. Yeah, it's interesting because we spoke to Strauss Zelnick yesterday on, on Power Lunch, and I asked him that very question. He said, I think ultimately people want an aggregator, a platform, because they're not going to go to the individual game makers for it. So it's, it's a similar sort of um, comparison. We do, Alex, while you're here, want to go through some of Netflix's potential competitors and talk about who has the best chances to challenge Netflix. And so we want to start off with AT&T, the winner, of course, out of yesterday's court ruling. What yeah, I think, think AT&T overall is a winner in the Netflix competition because they own HBO now. So if you're going to think about what are some OTT competitors that can compete, well, you look at the numbers. Netflix has 125 million global subscribers. HBO is the ga one game in town domestically that competes with that. So you, you attach HBO 
to AT&T, and now all of a sudden AT&T is going through this process of converting their old U-verse customers into DirecTV customers, and then playing around with this idea of having this live about HBO, stream process. Is it, but is this H HBO's content play? Or is this HBO? Because if we're talking about content, this is the whole point. They're buying content. <clears throat> right. So if you're excited about HBO because it gives um, Time Warner, AT&T, now a brand that's you know, a great piece of content, then why aren't you really excited for Comcast? Because HBO is both a distribution play and a content play, okay. right? I mean, HBO goes over the top and it goes within the cable bundle. So at least in the, in the Netflix world, in the Netflix competition, you'd have to imagine that AT&T is now better off competing against Netflix than they were if this deal didn't go through. All right, Disney, without Fox, Disney. So Disney's in a tough situation. Disney is the, is the prime example of the innovator's dilemma. Disney has a great business, a dual revenue stream from both advertising revenue and subscription revenue, and they're sort of saying, we feel like the market has dictated that we've lost, the cable bundle is dying, so we're going to try to start this OTT service to compete. Is that what they should be doing, or should they be making a different pitch to investors? I, I don't know on that one. So Disney's hazy. I mean, we, we have no idea how successful this OTT service will be. They're pulling their content off Netflix, so that obviously they feel like they certainly have the brands, Pixar, all the movies that will generate people to switch over to them. Right. But they're in a tough situation because they have to cannibalize themselves a better business in order to get into a worse business. All right, last up, Amazon. And this is probably the most comparable to Netflix, the prime uh, business. So I spoke to many different people at Netflix when I wrote this story for, for CNBC.com that you can read today about the competition with Amazon. And the trick with Amazon is where is the focus? So theoretically, Amazon is Netflix's biggest competitor. They sort of do the same thing. They're relentlessly focused on a customer. They can offer a lot of video for a low price. They can throw billions and billions of dollars at it and probably have the same effect with the shares keep rising. But video has never really been the main focus for Amazon, where it's the only focus for Netflix. So I'd answer that by saying, if we see Amazon starting to focus on streaming video more, then they're probably Netflix's biggest competitor. And focus meaning not just percent of revenue, but also maybe spending on? Spending yeah. dollars spent, content dollars spent. Alex, thank you. Thank you. Alex Sherman, who, by the way, just made his Fast Money debut. Nice. Maiden Voyage. Maiden Voyage. Great voice, like a baritone. What do you yeah. do with, uh, with baritone, don't you think? I, yeah, yeah. Booming absolutely. Voice. Sure. Uh, you're uh, you're discounting me. You cause... can check out his full story about Netflix dominating the media wars on CNBC.com. I'm yeah. reading all the time. What we didn't mention, what we didn't mention, four letters doubled since last June. What's that stock? I don't know. Twitter. Stock is doubled. I think it still goes higher from here. And to, to, to David's point, quickly, mm -hmm. I think Netflix has competition. Absolutely. But the same way the Golden State Warriors have competition. They have a lot of competition, but they're just that much oh. better than everybody else. Right. Wow, what a comparison. Like Coming there up, you go. this guy over there says this under-the-radar tech stock is soaring, and he's uh, saying it's going to go even higher. He'll step up the plate to give us his fast pitch. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Shall we play a game? You bet. Because thousands of kids are getting paid to play video games. And we've got a top gamer who will teach you how to do just that. Plus, the price of Bitcoin is being manipulated. Do you think so? Or so says an explosive academic report. And the author of that report will be here to explain how. When Fast Money returns. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. An explosive new study out today sending shockwaves throughout the crypto universe. New evidence alleging market manipulation in the price of Bitcoin on its way to the record high back in December. Our Bob Bassani joins us at the NYSE with more on the story. Bob. Quite explosive, Melissa. Is the price of Bitcoin really being manipulated? A paper by finance professor John Griffin and Amin Shams, a graduate student at the University of Texas, says that manipulation may have accounted for at least half of the increase in the price of Bitcoin and other cryptos in the last year. Now, Griffin and Shams looked at activity at Bitfinex. This is one of the largest exchanges, noting that the flow in and out of that exchange showed patterns that indicated that prices were being pushed up at times when they were sagging at other exchanges. Now, they say this was accomplished using Tether, which is a digital currency pegged to the U.S. dollar. The paper concludes that purchases of Bitcoin using Tether were timed following market downturns and resulted in sizable increases in Bitcoin prices. They say that less than 1% of the hours where there was heavy Tether transactions tied to uh, accounted for half of Bitcoin's meteoric rise and more than half of other top cryptocurrencies. Now, they concluded that they found, quote, and I'm quoting them, substantial support for the view that price manipulation may be behind substantial distortive effects in cryptocurrencies. All right, what should be done about this? The author suggests that market surveillance within a proper regulatory framework may be needed for crypto markets to be legitimate stores of value and a reliable medium for fair financial transactions. You know, Tether was created and sold by the owners of Bitfinex. Now, when asked for comment, Bitfinex CEO J.L. Vanderveld told CNBC, quote, Bitfinex nor Tether is nor has ever engaged in any sort of price or uh, market manipulation. Tether issuances cannot be used to prop up the price of Bitcoin or any other coin token on Bitfinex. Now, this isn't the first time Griffin has made market manipulation claims. He wrote a paper in 2016 alleging financial contracts tied to the VIX were also potentially being manipulated. Back to you, Melissa. All right. Thank you very much, Bob Bassani. Uh, let's bring in the co-author of that study, Amin Shams, the researcher at the University of Texas, Austin. Amin, great to have you with us. Uh, excited to be here. Um, we, we've got the report here. Uh, if, you were, if you were called in front of regulators, what would you say to them? Uh, I would say that uh, so any investor, I mean, the first thing investors need from a market is to trust it. And the first thing uh, a market needs uh, uh, to grow naturally is integrity. So we find evidences that uh, the rise in uh, Bitcoin and uh, other cryptocurrency prices during the boom of 2017 may not be all driven by demand-based stories. When you take a look at the charts of all the coins, uh, for that matter, Amin, you know, in the run-up and then the following crash, they are all highly correlated. Did you find any other sort of um, possible manipulation when it comes to other coins using Tether? So, uh, of course, cryptocurrency prices are very correlated and it's very hard to uh, distinguish between different cryptocurrencies. But we look at uh, the cross-section of uh, uh, some major large uh, cryptocurrencies and we show that price of all of, the, all of those cryptocurrencies uh, was affected. There are so many reports, Amin, about so, the so-called Bitcoin whales out there, and I'm wondering if that's an area that you, where you think uh, they either 
could have played a role in this tether-related manipulation of Bitcoin prices, or if perhaps they were in cahoots with the guys who were um, manipulating tether and then therefore Bitcoin? Uh, it could be, but we didn't specifically focus on that. Uh, so this is a market that's supposed to attract uh, uh, it's supposed to be decentralized, but uh, we see that prices could be hugely affected by these uh, big players in the market uh, that kind of questions the philosophy of the, uh, the market. All right, Amin, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating okay, sure. study. Amin Shams of the you. University of Texas, and, uh, and it's a big study. And this certainly, I mean, the bottom line here is, is the fear of increased regulation when it comes to cryptocurrencies. And I think yeah. that was sort of the, the shudder felt by all the investors today. Yeah, I, listen, I mean, we say it again and again. I think there's a lot of investors who are in this for the long haul who would like to see some framework. They'd like to see yeah, some regulation. Yeah, are people waiting for yeah. regulation? Yeah, Isn't that... and, and so it's really interesting when you think about, the, you know, some of this, the talk of manipulation by whales or whatever. When you look at the breakout that you had from November up into the highs, and, you know, that was a mania. And whether it was being manipulated or not or goosed up a little bit, but that was a worldwide mania that took it... Bitcoin to 20,000 and all these other coins with it. So the fact that we're overshooting on the downside can't be much of a surprise, and there's going to be a lot of bad actors taken out along the way, and I think that that should make people feel better about it as we go. But looking back, I remember during this rush, right, you had you had prices on different exchanges, very, very big difference in prices. Like, I mean, you look at Coinbase in general, there were so many accounts being opened on Coinbase, they couldn't, they couldn't get enough Bitcoin. Whereas you look at Bitronex, there are people that were arbing that, so you'd buy it on Bitronex, you'd sell it on Coinbase. So I think that whole process maybe skews his data a little bit. So I, I think in general, the ARB, it, in my opinion, was just closed here. That's all it was. You're looking at prices being very different on different exchanges. And I think that the traders took advantage of that. But I think when you hear, when we had on all those people who were bullish of Bitcoin going in November, December, whatever, and they were saying 100,000, 90,000, whatever that forecast is, that makes you think twice about every single forecast that was put out there. Well, look, I mean, the forecasts are just based upon a view that we believe that, that uh, uh, blockchain is here for forever and therefore the vehicles to play it are, are going higher. I'm not sure these are the horses to ride. I believe blockchain forever though. Still ahead, the Super Bowl of gaming is happening right now in LA. One of the top gamers is going to tell us how she became a gaming baller and how you can too. Plus, Guy Adami just made his way over to the plaza where he's gearing up to buy one under the radar tech stock that has been on a tear. He'll tell us the name next. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money Time for our Fast Pitch, where one of our traders pitches a stock they think will break out. So Guy is up to the plate. Guy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Mel. This is a lot of fun. I'm going to fast pitch Nuance Communications. Fascinating company, a stock that has gone nowhere now, effectively for the last decade. So you ask, why pitch it now? Very good question. Leader in the human-machine talk. What does that mean? People talking to machines. Automotive, they dominate. By 2020, they're going to be almost 200 million cars, smart cars, where people can talk to the automobiles. Who dominates in that field? Nuance. Partnership with Mercedes-Benz. Who do you want to be with in this space? Nobody better than Mercedes. That was recently announced. And they have a new CEO. Mark Benjamin just came in. This stock has floundered. A lot of self-inflicted wounds over the last years. But Mark Benjamin just came on. Recent acquisition tells me maybe all the bad news is in the rearview mirror. Valuation is reasonable. Market cap is such that they could be picked up by any number of suitors. That was the bull case for Nuance five years ago. I think that might be the bull case for Nuance now. Uh, any other, uh, you know, things that you see other than automotive that you see? No, that, listen, 
they dominate in that space. You, if you believe in that stock, you have to believe that they're going to dominate in automotive. That is now their bread and butter. Yeah, they have a couple tag-along businesses for sure, but to me, it's automotive. Not unlike, by the way, NVIDIA. I'm not suggesting you have the same move, but the move in NVIDIA from basically 100 to 240 largely is predicated on their dominance in automotive. I think could, similar could happen here. Time to vote. Are you buying Guy's pitch on nuanced communications? Tim, what do you say? I'm really, I love my friend Guy. However, no but I, I was not convinced. I, I just don't, I don't see the catalyst here. I, I think the, the evaluation is far from compromising, but sorry, bud. 32. I am unfortunately in the same camp, Guy. I love you to death, oh, but, but no. I am selling this one. Again, it's all about the catalyst, and I'm not really <laughs> super happy about the fact they just dominate in one particular area and have been stagnant for the past decade. Dan? Uh, Dude, you really dialed this wow. one in. I mean, to be very honest with you, um, I just can't think of um, a reason why I want to buy the stock here. The desk is Tony Braxton, you. Um, the stock, though, by the way, the when stock. When was the last time we had this? The I mean, stock really... is up 5% in the after hours. Oh, ah. Twitter's going to love this one. They're the question, vote, though, the walk of shame, question though. is, do you at home agree? You can log on to Twitter and vote in the poll. Tell us if you're buying or selling Guy's Pitch on NUAN. We'll reveal the results at the end of the show. Plus, the Super Bowl of Gaming is happening right now. One of the most popular gamers online and in real life is joining us to tell us how she became a gaming baller. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Call it the Super Bowl of Gaming. E3, the world's biggest gaming expo, happening right now in Los Angeles. Let's head out to Josh Lipton for more on that. Hi, Josh. Melissa, more than 60,000 people are at E3 this year from more than 100 countries with millions more watching online. So this is where gamers get to check out the latest and greatest titles and technology. show is owned by the Entertainment Software Association. That's the trade association representing the video game industry. The list of participating companies this year, a who's who in the world of gaming. Publishers like Activision and Take-Two, high-profile studios like Bethesda, chip makers like NVIDIA, and tech giants like Google. Microsoft, it's there too and made some news, unveiling a string of exclusive games for the Xbox console and the acquisition of five content studios. Gaming, we know, is big business, a $116 billion industry, so it's no wonder everybody wants in here. One red-hot trend in this market, streaming services like Amazon's Twitch. Analysts at Bayard say these services are a relatively small part of the overall industry right now, but it's also clear, they say, that companies take it seriously as a future distribution channel. IDC's Lewis Ward estimates that the video streaming of gameplay, and it's including premium subscriptions and display ad revenue, hit $4.5 billion last year. He thinks that's going to jump to $5.4 billion this year. Twitch, he says, is by far and away number one, followed by YouTube. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Josh Lipton in San Francisco. Joining us now from the aforementioned E3 Expo in Los Angeles is the gamer who goes by Ammunition. Not her real name, <laughs> but a great name. One of the most popular Twitch streaming gamers. Welcome to the show, and Great to have you with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. At one time, you had a conventional job. So how did you actually make that switch to professional gamer? Because I think a lot of people would love to do the same thing. Yeah, I've been playing video games my whole life, but I was a graphic designer right before I started streaming, and then it was just a hobby that I picked up in my free time. It was something I enjoyed doing, and I've been doing that for about four years now, and I've been full-time for about three years, so I was able to actually leave my full-time job and, and just play video games now all the time. There are hundreds of gamers out there, Anne, so how do, you, how do you stand out? I'm sure that 
um, popularity will help you in terms of how many people watch you, how many people follow you, and also the potential sponsorships that you have. Yeah, one thing people ask me that a lot, and I try to remind them that not every band is the Beatles or not every you know performer is Beyonce, and so you can have your own little niche of followers and viewers and an audience who actually care about you specifically. And I'm not striving to be like the number one streamer on all of the platforms, but I just like being able to entertain my audience with things that I'm really passionate about. You've been in this for a while now, four years, you had mentioned, and in this time, we've seen it really go more mainstream and now there are full channels devoted to it and even some of the big entertainment companies are, are considering having channels themselves. I'm wondering Anne, if you're seeing that reflected in who you meet at these conventions and who watches you, who follows you, etc. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, there's having the uh, Fortnite tournament right now. There's a ton of celebrities and like NBA players that are involved with it. You know, Ninja, who is currently the number one streamer on Twitch, did a stream with Drake, which was something that really catapulted streaming into the mainstream view. And I mean, I played a video game the other day with Ben Simmons, who's like in the NBA. And that kind of thing has been really picking up over the past few months. And it's kind of shocking to see. When you think about gamers entering the space, Anne, uh, do you think that they are competition, or is this a space that is increasing so much that there's room for everyone? I think it's fair to consider everyone really competition. You know, it, it is like everything that we do, and it, it, especially as a freelancer or a contractor, like you are in competition with other people. I don't see it as something that's cutthroat. Like I'm not going to refuse to work with someone because they're a streamer or something like that, but it is fair to consider a competition. All right, Anne, great speaking with you. Thanks so much. Good luck with everything. Anne Munition. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Joining us from uh, E3. All right, so with Twitch, one of the largest players in the gaming world is Amazon winning the gaming war. Remember the Amazon Twitch connection here, Guy. They win, all, they win every war they're in, but I mean, I think there are better ways to play it. Tim's been mentioning electronic arts for quite some time. I mean, Amazon is obviously a dominant play, but I don't think you can get all that much beta in that name necessarily. I think you will in electronic arts, and I absolutely think you will in Take Two, a name we started mentioning in the mid-90s, now trading 118, I think goes higher from here. Well, I, I think if you're going to go for a mega cap, mega mega, go Tencent. I mean, this is the world's biggest gaming company, period, right now. So it's not only because they are essentially investing in all, uh, they have an incubator there. They are invested in half of these companies that bought a big stake in Blizzard. But these guys are probably, you know, 18% of the gaming revenues in the world, at least the last numbers I saw. Then you have League of Legends. Um, you know, they have games like the, the team games that, but that are global phenomenon that I think are it's, really it's white. It's not all rosy. The information had a report today out about Tencent, about their Supercell <laughs> purchase with an $8 billion acquisition a few years ago. And they're starting to see decelerating revenues. They're seeing that these life cycle of these games, it's not just a home run all the time. What I'm saying is we can sit here and be all rosy What's a private about everything. Company? I mean, it's the, it's the biggest tech you know, incubator in the okay. world, Tencent. I, that, that, to me, is why I want to own it. They're right. going to fail on a lot of well, stuff. Well, right? well, I'm just saying, though, is I'm, you know, things are getting a little frothy, right? Like, so that, that's kind of my point. Yeah, and I, think, I think, again, the very, very important point is the competition. I and mean, we hear about all these titles coming out. There's a massive amount of competition coming to the table. I mean, look at it and say one of the best ways to play is NVIDIA. I mean, that's probably one of the purest plays if you think about really getting exposure to the gaming sector just to buy that, that, that one particular name. All right. Well, coming up on Mad Money tonight, Jim Cramer is talking to the CEO of Restoration Hardware. You see it right there in the Cramer cam. That stock has been an unstoppable one, up 200% in the past year. And you, believe, you won't believe what he just told Jim. That's all at the top of the hour. And there's still much more fast right after this. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Home builders getting wrecked today as the Fed raised rates and said it would continue to raise rates this year. But one trader is betting on a big rebound for one name in particular in the space. So, Dan, what'd you see? Yeah, so it was in Lenar. The stock got Schmeister today. It's down 17% in the year. It's down 28% from its 52 week highs made earlier in the year. And call volume ran two times average daily volume on a day, like I said, where it was getting smacked. Um, one trader was looking out to July expiration. They bought an interesting call spread, a one by two call spread, the 55. Uh, 60, one by two, 2,500 times by 5,000. It breaks even at 55.75. Max gain is up at $60 on July expiration. Good risk reward here. One of the reasons for the ratio spread is implied volatility. The price of options has moved up as the stock has moved down. So this is a kind of interesting trade. A, a trader just playing for a move back up to 60 bucks. All right. For more options action, you can check out the full show. That's Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, we have the results of the poll. Yeah. Guys Ooh. and uh, green. Uh, but there's close, still right? time to vote, so go to Twitter. Uh, we we'll right? also have the final trade. Stay tuned. Uh. <laughs> it's a riddle. What do Guy Adami and Carl Icahn have in common? Tony Braxton. They both love listening to Tony Braxton's <laughs> on Break My Heart. Sorry. The desk did not like your pitch. The Twitterverse did not like it either. You were creamed. 67% said so. You take such glee in that. I mean, listen to you. You, you were creamed. They beat <laughs> you. I'm not sure you ever saw that score. Frankly. The stock is up 2% after hours, so by the what? way. I tell you what. Hey, final trade. You should have picked J.P. Morgan, guy, because I think the banks are going higher. I think <laughs> everything we're hearing from the Federal Reserve tells you great economy, great environment for banks. Boom. Steve uh, I'm going to talk uh, about a retailer, CRI Carters. It's a sell here. Input costs are going higher. Not reflected in the stock. Dan? Yeah, I, IWM, I think it sets up for a good sell back to 160, the breakout level. How are you holding up there? I'm fine. I'm, are you kidding me? I'm rock solid. Doesn't <laughs> Carter's make like diapers or baby clothes? You know them Final well. Trade, please, you might sir. need something. You know, my nuance. And I'm going to laugh at all of you when somebody buys them a week from now. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for Fast. Mad Money starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.